Hello, and welcome to Sundays at Coastal. This week, Pastor Paul Dugan continues our series in the book of Acts with a sermon out of Acts chapter 4, titled, You Can't Shut Us Up. The gospel of Jesus is in opposition to the power structures that seek to exploit the poor, needy, and marginalized. Those in power will seek to silence the name of Jesus Christ, but God has given us the Holy Spirit to be his witnesses to those around us. Will you be silenced by those who would persecute you for proclaiming the good news, or worse, by the lies you tell yourself? You may not believe you are worthy, educated, or adequate to share the gospel. The truth is that God has chosen you to be his witness. Will you ask for the boldness to walk in his will? So, uh, we, you know, we have this core belief that shapes everything we do and think here at Coastal, built around three words. Can you say the three words with me? Hope, beyond our brokenness, trust our risen Savior, and restoration from our our community. And you could build a whole grand story of Scripture around those three. They could be like three chapters in a great narrative of redemption. Hope beyond the world and Israel's brokenness. Amen? And they were a mess, and we are a mess. And the whole story climaxes in a crucified and risen Savior who is worth trusting with your whole life. And the rest of the story, the New Testament, is how that good news of that risen Savior and his kingdom is bringing blessing to the nations. That's the story of the Bible, guys, and it's what we believe. And because of that belief, if it's really true, it calls for a, a daily decision, and we choose to be disciples of Jesus. A disciple is one who walks intentionally with God. Therefore, can you say it with me? I choose to be changed by Jesus. Choose to seek Jesus first. And I choose to join Jesus in his resurrection right now. Amen. So following his resurrection, Jesus gave his church a mission and a promise. Uh, He said, don't go until you receive the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. And the theme verse of the whole book of Acts, which we are journeying through, is chapter 1, verse 8. Can you read it with me? But you, by the way, it's a you plural, so but y'all will receive when the comes on you, y'all, and y'all will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, across the tracks, and to the ends of the earth. And that's exactly what God did on the day of Pentecost, that great festival when visitors from throughout the Roman Empire were in Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit came on the waiting disciples. And after Peter, the former denier of his Lord, proclaimed the good news of a risen Savior, the church was born, this massive multi-ethnic family of 3,000 Jesus followers. Is that cool? And the good news spread like wildfire. During the last two weeks, we focused on a beautiful healing. In Jerusalem, a crippled man was placed each day at the temple gate called Beautiful. I love it. The man would beg everyone for a handout as they entered worship. When he made his plea to Peter and John, he got more than he bargained for, did he not? Peter looked at him and declared, silver and gold we don't have, but in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And he did, set free from a lifelong disability. He entered the temple 
walking and leaping and praising. You guys remember that? Some of you. That's dating some of us. <laughs> In the name. Yes. An amazed crowd gathered, thinking it was Peter and John's power and piety that made this man well. And Peter boldly says, no, no, this is not us. This is Jesus. Amen? The man you crucified, God raised, and it's by his name that this man standing right here is before you whole. Then Peter proclaimed the good news that this man's healing was a foretaste. We talked about last week of the full restoration that God wants to bring through Jesus when heaven and earth are completely reunited. And so he leaves them with this word, repent and turn to God that you may experience times of refreshing in the Lord. And that brings us to chapter 4, verse 1. But can we pray? Begin. <clears throat> By the way, I have a disclaimer. I have three disclaimers. Number one, um, I've been at a conference, an alpha conference in the Bay Area the last two days, and I'm a little weary, so if the brain cells are a little disconnected, there's a reason. Um, number two, I've got a post-COVID frog right here, so um, don't make me laugh, because it makes me break into a horrendous cough. Um, and number three, I'm going to be doing some history work with you. How many of you just loved history in school? It was just your favorite sub. How many of you just dis <laughs> didn't? <laughs> you know, some professors and teachers can kill history. But there are many reasons to love history. One of them is that you can be really inspired by those who've gone before you. Another reason is you can learn. Because those who ignore history can repeat the failures of the past. So for those two reasons, we're going to do some history work. Please be patient. Was there a third disclaimer? I don't remember. <laughs> Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we, we've just sung the gospel here. Um, and Trina is, is going to give away uh, a gift in the name of the gospel. And... Now we hear the gospel, and we want to embrace it. We want to grasp it from our hearts and imaginations and wills and emotions and bodies right into every little closet in our souls. We welcome you, King Jesus, right now in this space, in this time, and in the digital, sp digital spaces that we gather in. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Chapter 4, verse 1. As they, Peter and John... We're speaking to the people following the healing. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees. Whenever I say Sadducees, you always got to go, oh, okay. Sadducees came up to them being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Another translation says they were proclaiming the resurrection of the dead had begun to happen in Jesus. Here in Acts 4, we witness the first of many persecutions of this new Jesus movement. The gospel inevitably brings resistance. This man's healing connected with the message of a risen Messiah was a threat to the religious authorities. They were greatly annoyed. The, the Greek word is exasperated and exhausted. I, that's what the word means. They were exasperated and exhausted uh, and sent the temple police to arrest Peter and John. And I believe they 
also arrested the healed man. Get this. He's arrested for being healed. Figure that one out. So who are these authorities? We're going to do some history. You ready? Yes, Pastor Paul. All right. First century Israel, there are four primary Jewish political parties. They all shared a longing for the restoration of Israel and the coming of the kingdom. However, they were deeply divided over how they believed the kingdom would come. And so uh, it's helpful to use a chart, I'm a visual guy, to show how these different groups related to one another and to their culture. Can you guys see that chart? Um, The vertical line contrasts political activism versus more of a spiritual approach to the kingdom. And the horizontal line contrasts different postures towards the surrounding culture from engagement to separation. So first, we have the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the moralists. You see where they're at on the chart? Believing the kingdom would come when the people would finally return to faithful adherence to the Torah. And it's interesting, the Pharisees were by far the most popular group among the common people of all the parties. Contrary to a lot of uh, contemporary uh, assumptions. Number two were the Essenes. The Essenes were the monastics, believing that the kingdom would come as the faithful withdrew from the world and all this idolatrous religious activity and prepared for the Messiah through self-denial, prayer, and spiritual contemplation. We have the Dead Sea Scrolls from the Essenes, for example. They withdrew into the desert. Notice they're way out on the separate spiritual continuum. And thirdly, we have the Zealots. The Zealots had no patience with any of these approaches. They were the insurgents, the Jewish insurgents, believing the kingdom would only come by violent revolution against Rome. Jewish insurgents. And finally, we had the Sadducees. The most grumpy of all the Jewish groups, because they were sad, you see. There you go. Actually, this was the most powerful group. These were the elites in first century Israel. The Sadducees were religious politicians of their day, the smooth operators. They believed the kingdom would come through a variety of negotiated compromise with their pagan overlords, the Romans. The Sadducees were the deists of their day, rejecting the supernatural miracles, especially the idea of a resurrection. The families of the Sadducees were entrenched in power over Israel's entire religious life, over the temple, the priesthood, the sacrificial system, and the Jewish Supreme Court, which is called the Sanhedrin. So you think we have political divisions in the U.S. today? By the way, can you see of any of our divisions on this chart? I was hoping you'd make some connections there. You see, first century Israel was a political tinderbox, friends. It's hard to communicate how it was literally ready to explode. With all four of these parties contending for influence among the people, all under the iron grip of the Roman Empire. So, time out. Can I ask you a quiz question? 
Which of these groups did Jesus belong to? Is that your answer? Are you sticking to it? You are exactly right. You get an A for the day. <laughs> Jesus refused to be captive to any of these groups. I love this about Jesus. Why is a resurrected Messiah such a threat, both in the first century and in the 21st century? Because he can't. He won't fit into our little personal, religious, cultural, or political boxes. Is that good news? He firmly and lovingly disrupts every one of them. And can I caution you with gentleness? If your Jesus fits nicely into your box, he is not the Jesus of Scripture. You see, we all live in these little boxes, carefully constructed. Everyone more or less believes in God. It really takes courage to be an atheist, by the way. But most of us do our best to keep God on the margins of our lives. And failing that, we refashion God to suit our own convenience. We want a God who's there when we're desperate, but otherwise does not meddle with our own kingdom projects, our little kingdom. The message of a resurrection is a threat because it validates Jesus as the sovereign center of the universe, not off in the wings awaiting our beck and call. The gospel of the kingdom insists that we deal with God as God reveals himself, not as we imagine him to be. The sovereign, liberating presence of God is revealed in the person of Jesus, friends, and in the work and the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And Peter and John were waking Israel up to this, this liberating king. Many received this Jesus and were transformed, but some pushed back, especially those in religious power. So back to verse 3. Can you read this with me? Verse 3. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail into the next day, for it was already evening. But, can you say that with a, a little more? But... Many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of men, not, to be about 5,000, and that's not including women and children. I love the but here. I love the buts of the Bible, by the way. Luke notes that in spite of the jailing of Peter and John, the religious authorities can't lock up the good news of the Lord Jesus. The community of Jesus' followers continues to grow with 2,000 more new disciples joining their ranks since Pentecost. This is a recurring theme throughout Acts. The gospel makes steady progress in the face of great opposition, and so it is today. Friends, Jesus seems to be doing his best work in places around the world today where there's the greatest opposition, resistance, and persecution. Some of the most on-fire Jesus followers I've ever met were a small group of Turkish believers in Turkey who, who are experiencing intense persecution for their loyalty to Jesus. I have never been in a community of people who are so saturated with Jesus. Um, and they were living under such pressure. Chapter 4, verse 5. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes and Sadducees 
were gathered together in Jerusalem, and Annas the high priest was there, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and all who were of high priestly descent. When they had placed them in the center, Peter and John and the healed man, they began to inquire, by what power or in what name have you done this? Now, guys, the office of high priest was one of the most powerful positions in first century Israel. It would be like putting three positions together into one. The U.S. president, the chief justice of the Supreme Court, and the pope into one role. That's the high priest, guys. Scary, huh? And then former high priests, like those listed in verse 6, retain significant power, becoming a kind of oligarchy of privilege in Israel. This council demands an answer by what power or what name have you done this? You friends, it's all about authority and power. This is a power encounter. To understand this power encounter, can I take, you, take a pit stop back to the Jesus story? Can I do that? So we're going to do some history work? Yes, Pastor Paul, you can do that. All right, volume one of Luke's two-volume set was called the Gospel According to Luke. Volume two is called Acts of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to go back to volume one. You see, in chapter 19, during his final week, Jesus came near to Jerusalem, and he wept. And he, he just prayed this prayer of only you, Jerusalem, Yerushalom, Yerushalom, city of peace. If only you knew what would bring you true shalom. The days are coming when your enemies will encircle you, dash you to the ground. They will leave you, will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming. And following the Jews' persistent attempts to reestablish their own national ideology and revolt against the Romans, the Roman commander Titus came in in A.D. 70 and destroyed the city and the temple, fulfilling Jesus' weeping words. And then Jesus enters the temple area and begins disrupting the whole sacrificial system, acting like he owned the place, saying, my house will be a house of prayer for the nations, but you have made it a den of like the great prophet Jeremiah, Jesus was not merely mounting an angry protest of the commercialization of the temple. His action is a solemn prophetic warning that the whole religious system and ideology is under judgment. This is radical, guys. The temple, the place God intended to be the new Eden where heaven and earth overlapped as a foretaste of God's new creation. By the time of Jesus, the temple, under its current managers, had become an idol. You guys with me? A token of power, national ideology, and control. And so Luke 20 continues, On one of those days, while Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and announcing the good news, the chief priests and the scribes came up with the elders and said to him, Tell us by what authority you are doing these things. Have you heard those words before? <laughs> you see, Jesus then tells a story about a master. I love it. Whenever Jesus is asked a question, he, he doesn't answer. He tells stories. He tells a story about a man who planted a vineyard. 
let it out to tenants and went abroad. And when the time came to collect the produce, he sent messengers, but the tenants beat the messengers and threw them out. So the master said, I'm going to send my own son. But the tenants said, whoa, we, this is their heir. Let us kill him. Then the inheritance will belong to us. So the master came himself and wiped out the tenants and gave the vineyard to others. At this point, Jesus recognized his hearers are starting to squirm. And he looked at his religious critics and quoted Psalm 118. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. His hearers, the teachers of the law, the chief priests, from then on looked for a way to arrest him and kill him because they knew what they were he was talking about. So what's the story about? How does it connect to Acts? It's clear that the vineyard represents the temple and the tenants represent the current religious elite in charge of the temple. And you could put, replace that with any good gift that we turn into, a gift of God that we turn into a personal idol project, that'll be your temple. Jesus is claiming to be the master of the vineyard, i.e. the temple, calling forth its fruit, the fruit of faithfulness, justice, mercy, and love. So back to Acts 4, verse 8. Will you read with me? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being on trial today for a benefit done to the sick man, pause. Is there any sarcasm in that statement? As to how this man was made well, let's continue to read. Let it be known to all y'all, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. Does that sound familiar? Psalm 118 again. You see, Peter is again connecting the healing with the healer. The one you rejected. God raised, and it's by his name this man stands here healed. And then, like Jesus in Luke 20, Peter quotes from that amazing Psalm 118, connecting the rejected, risen Jesus with the larger story of Scripture and this man's healing story. Jesus, friends, is the stone that we rejected, and God is building his whole new temple on that stone. Is that good news? Here's the great irony that Jesus, the one rejected by the temple builders, the one thrown into the waste pile, is the very one God has chosen to build his kingdom on. And Peter goes on in verse 13. Please read it with me. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we may be saved. You see, it's not only the healing that comes in this name. It's in this name alone that salvation has come to the world, friends. Psalm 118, the psalm quoted by Jesus and Peter, is a salvation psalm. I love to turn psalms when I don't know how to pray. Just turn the psalms into prayers. And here's my paraphrase of that psalm. I encourage you to read the whole psalm today, Psalm 118. It's a salvation psalm. This is my paraphrase. Jesus, you are my strength, my song, 
my salvation and my joy. You are my victory, my resurrection, and my righteousness. Jesus, you are the beautiful gate, the true temple, the place where heaven and earth come together. You are the stone which the builders rejected, upon which I am building my life. Amen? You are the cornerstone of my identity. You are my salvation. You alone, Jesus. As human beings, we have this tendency to exhaust ourselves with our self-salvation projects. Amen? It may be through the pursuit of performance, appearance, approval, achievement, intelligence, affluence, or just through isolation and escape. But how is this working for us <laughs> as a culture? These strategies all fall short, leaving us exhausted and cynical, often with unintended consequences. I just want to ask you, friends, what stone are you building your life on? What are you building your identity on, your purpose? At this juncture in your life today, what are you building on? And how's that working for you? How's that working for you? Peter declares boldly that Jesus alone is the, the living stone, the source of our rescue. Jesus, This Jesus exclusivity was an offense to his hearers then, and it continues to be an offense to our hearers today. And yet, this exclusive Jesus, this stumbling stone, has become the cornerstone. There's no other foundation on which to build a life. He is the solid rock. All other ground is... Can you read with me verse 13? Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men... They were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. What was it about Peter and John and the healed man that amazed them? How did their critics know they had been with Jesus? How do your critics know you've been with Jesus? What causes others to say, well, I may not agree with what you believe, but I can't deny the reality of your experience with this Jesus. Because I see the difference he's making in your life. Do you want people to be able to say that about you? The whole life of discipleship can be summarized in this statement. Being with Jesus in order to be like Jesus for the sake of the world. Can you say that with me? Being with Jesus in order to be like Jesus for the sake of the world. Being with it's a beautiful word. It means being attentive to, being present to. We are all being shaped by what we give our attention to during the week, consciously and unconsciously. There's no neutral ground, friends. Everyone, all the time, is being shaped and discipled by this world in some way. The great freedom you and I have is this. We all have a choice every day Every hour, every minute on what we will give our attention to. You have that choice, amen? So my question is just this. How do you plan to be with Jesus this week? How will this time shape you so others see, like Peter and John, that you've been with him? It doesn't happen by accident. It's intentional, just like any relationship. Being with requires attention and intention. Amen? 
So notice, their impact is not how much they knew, but who they knew. Peter and John were illiterate fishermen from Galilee, or as Andy likes to say, from Kuyama. <laughs> the Greek word untrained is literally idiotes. Does that sound like anything? <laughs> idiotes, meaning unskilled, ignorant, or uncouth. I think that's so cool that the gospel just blew up in the Roman Empire through uncouth folks like Peter and John. I love it. They had no credentials, no degrees, no doctorates, no rabbinic training, no priestly status. They just had Jesus, and that was enough. Acts 4.14, and seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. I love it. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. But so, it will not spread any further among the people. Let us warn them. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> to not longer, no longer speak or teach in the name of Jesus. This is getting really comical, guys. A man born disabled is healed. A resurrected Messiah is on the move, transforming Jerusalem. Thousands are experiencing the healing presence of Jesus. And this council expects Peter and John to stop talking about it? You've heard the term cancel culture? This is a pitiful example of first century religious cancel culture. I love Peter and John's response. Oh, read it with me. But Peter and John answered and said to them, No sarcasm. No sarcasm there? Tongue in the cheek? Now, I just need to caution you. This is not thoughtless anarchy. It's not an example of arrogant, self-righteous disrespect for authority. But it is deliberate civil disobedience. You guys with me? The New Testament message on civil disobedience is nuanced. It teaches us first, clearly in Romans, to obey the authorities. But it also teaches us that if the authorities demand you disobey clear teaching of Scripture, obey God. You guys with me? There's a tension there. And the church has lived in that tension for 2,000 years. It takes wisdom. This risen Jesus has commanded his disciples to go bear witness to the hope they found in the name of Jesus. And the authorities are commanding them to stop. Their position is clear. According to Peter and John, we must obey Jesus. When they, the council, had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punishment, punish them. On account of the people, because they were all glorifying, this is spreading like wildfire in Jerusalem. For the man was more than 40 years old. 40 is kind of a, a word about wilderness. He was in a wilderness of suffering with his disability for 40 years. You see, authority is passing friends from the old system to the new. This is a power encounter. Jesus declared before his ascension, 
All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is now Lord, not just of the temple, but of the whole world. This is a threat not only to the religious elite in Jerusalem. It was a threat to all human authorities, including Caesar himself, who called himself Lord. But this new Jesus-style authority is not expressed through dominance and control, but through self-giving love. Amen? If King Jesus is now, in fact, the Lord of the whole world, we have the privilege of welcoming his liberating authority into every corner of our lives. And we have the privilege of making that good news known to everyone we meet. Peter and John and the man healed refuse to be silenced. Throughout, back to history, the history of the church, I am deeply inspired by God's people who have refused to be silent in face of great opposition. Amen? Can I tell you the story of three Martins? It was our privilege during our vacation this summer to visit Wittenberg, Germany and see the very church where Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door. After rediscovering the scriptures, Luther confronted rampant church corruption. Before he was excommunicated in 1517, he declared before his critics, I cannot and will not recant because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. The world was never the same. Kathy and I also spent time in Berlin and learned so much about the horrible ways that the church compromised under Hitler during the 30s and under his German national ideology. Only a small group of Jesus followers, like Bonhoeffer and others, protested the national and racial idolatry of their society. Many in the church turned a blind eye to the atrocities against the Jewish people. One of them, Martin Niemöller, regretted not taking his stand until the very end. He said this, first they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. And finally, a third Martin. In the face of great resistance, Again, from religious folks, this time particularly white evangelical Christians in the South, Martin Luther King said, a man dies when he refuses to stand up for that which is right. A man dies when he refuses to stand up for justice. A man dies when he refuses to take a stand for that which is true. You see, all three Martins, along with Peter and John, had one thing in common. They had to take a stand in the face of religious people in power. Based on their understanding of the gospel. So, my question for the day. What have you let silence you? What have you let cancel your witness to our risen, living Lord Jesus, and your story in him. The hope you have in him. Can I give you four common things that I hear? And you could probably add, I'm not knowledgeable enough. Can anybody relate to that? 
guys, but neither were Peter and John guys. They were idiotes, all right? Here's another one I hear so often. I need to get my act together first. You ever heard that? Guys, just five weeks before Peter is disowning, he even knows his master Jesus. If Peter can be restored, you can be restored too and be his instrument. Amen? Uh, Here's another one. I fear rejection if I bear witness to my hope in Jesus. Well, I just want to say you're in good company. Jesus was rejected. His earliest followers were rejected. All these Martins were rejected. Uh, You're in a good company. Now, be careful that you're not being rejected for being rude or thoughtless or insensitive. But if you're being rejected for the offense of the gospel, you're in really good company, and your acceptance by Jesus is more valuable than the approval of your friends. Amen? And lastly, I've heard this more lately, when people really get honest in the church. I'm not sure I really believe, but I want to. How can I be a witness to others? Can I share with you what I think? I think this makes you a more powerful witness in today's skeptical culture than many of us. You see, you can be honest about your doubts, express your desire to trust Jesus, and invite others to join you in the journey towards trust. For example, like on Alpha this fall, I believe your doubt can actually help your skeptical friends feel less threatened because they also have doubts. Your doubt could be a gift in your witness. Jesus loves to reveal himself personally to honest doubters like Thomas. So finally, did I demolish any of your excuses for being canceled? There's probably others. Come to Table Talk and you can unpack that on the patio, the low center. Finally, I just want to encourage you to hang out with bold believers. Um, It's contagious. Get around people who are not ashamed. Uh, It's really contagious. Before launching an Alpha course in Trilogy Napomo, we took several months to do prayer walks. Now, this is not like a religious protest or super spiritual kumbaya thing. We just casually walked through the neighborhood with our eyes open and said, Jesus, give hope to these people who have so much that needs you. And we would pray every month. And I remember praying with one of our partners, one of the, just a brother in the Lord here at Coastal. And we're praying, and, and there's a woman coming our way, and he starts heading towards her. And I'm going, no, 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 don't do it, John. <laughs> remember, this is just prayer walk. We're praying for people, not with them. You know, don't embarrass me, the pastor. <laughs> And, and John leads us right up to that woman, a stranger, and says, Hi, we're just praying for the people in Trilogy. Can we pray for you? And I'm going, oh! You know, you know, and she says, oh my gosh. And she had been praying the rosary at that moment for her daughter, who was in the middle of a very difficult pregnancy. And she said, please pray for, with me for her. And we stood there on the central road in Trilogy and prayed for her daughter. 
If my friend John hadn't stepped out, we would have missed that moment. If, he, if we would have been, let ourselves be canceled, self-canceled, we would have missed the moment to bring the resurrection presence to Jesus, to that dear woman. I close with this amazing promise. Back in Acts 1.8. Can you read it again with me? And, and remember, it's you plural. But y'all will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on y'all. And y'all will be my in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria. Can we say Grover Beach, and Oceano, and San Luis Obispo, and Cambria, and Templeton, and Napomo, and Paso? Name them. Kuyama, yes, I grew up in Oxnard, even Oxnard, to to the what? The ends of the earth. Lord Jesus, you are worth, so worth knowing, and you are so worth telling about. And we ask now that as your spirit kind of marinates into those fears and those lies that have canceled our witness, Would you please give us the courage to reject those lies and join Peter and John and the man healed and all these Martins and all your saints through history who have stood in the face of pressure and pointed with love to a resurrected, liberating Lord. Give us courage this week. Give us divine appointments this week in Jesus' name. Let's sing. Can can I request a request? Can we do I Receive God's blessing as you go into all the places in your Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. May the grace of our Lord Jesus and the love of God, the koinonia of God, Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with y'all. Amen. Have a great day. Join me for prayer. Pastor Paul Dugan is the pastor of Mission and Discipleship at Coastal Community Church. It's located in Grover Beach, California, and serves communities across the Central Coast. Join us online each week on Sunday morning at 9 a.m. for our weekly live stream. We also have two in-person services at 9 a.m. and 10.40 a.m. in our sanctuary. Coastal Community Church is located at 1830 Farrell Road, Grover Beach, California. For more information, visit our website, www.mycoastal.org. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you have a great week.